is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith fam, I'm beyond excited to welcome on one of the most interesting people I follow on literally any platform. He's one of the best people I know at understanding and appreciating that we're living in an age of absolutely unprecedented information abundance. And he's on a mission to help all of us love it too and also learn how to contribute to it as writers and and thinkers. He's the host of the fantastic North Star podcast, writer of the awesome newsletters, Monday Musings and Friday Finds, which you should absolutely subscribe to. And he teaches the legendary course, Rite of Passage, on how to share ideas, build an audience online. He's the man, the myth himself. He's David Perel, and we're going to talk about how new media can revolutionize the world of ideas and how new ideas, in turn, can revolutionize the world of media. But first, so let's set this up. We started talking in the last episode about the book of Deuteronomy, the book which records the final speech that Moses delivers to the Israelites before his own death and their crossing over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And the book is often compared to Pericles' farewell address because it's a valedictory address. It's like a final speech before packing it in. And it is that, but conceptually speaking, Deuteronomy is much more than that because it's the very first time the Bible or any great literary tradition in the ancient world uses new media to shape its message. So until that point from Genesis through Numbers, the Bible uses a third person narrative style. It's just some anonymous oral speaker telling tales around the campfire, as it were. But then you get to Deuteronomy, and all of a sudden the Bible is using a first-person speech, the technique of oration, to retell and reshape the Israelites' history, the history of the covenant, and so much of the Bible's afterlife, especially among the communities that look at it as a model for conduct, is shaped by developments in media. So take the Protestant Reformation, for example, one of the most consequential events in human history. Why was Luther the first person to successfully pull off a widespread church reform movement? So the historian Andrew Pedigree has this fantastic book, Brand Luther, in which he argues that Luther succeeded because Luther was born into the first generation of print natives, like digital natives, but for the printing press. And Luther was able to figure out faster and better than anyone how to use the new and astonishing opportunities of that medium, popular writing, mass-produced artwork, even cohesive branding strategy, to bring a message out to the world. And a similar thing happened in the early modern Jewish community at roughly the same time. Print technology enabled the astonishing success of the most influential law code in Jewish history, the Shulchan Aruch, by making possible this like unprecedented blending of Eastern and Western traditions that would reach a mass public. So recognizing the opportunities made possible by new media and how these opportunities can not only reshuffle old wisdom, but make possible new wisdom is essential for the flourishing of humanity in the coming generation. We're living in an age of information superabundance and in which new tools for communicating make it possible not only to reach more people, but to shape them in very different ways than an era's path, leveraging that information. So how do we leverage these opportunities? How do we avoid the perils? And just exactly how should we think about this new age that we're in? How do we make it the best that it could possibly be? So to unpack all of this, I brought on someone who's not only thought about this at a higher level and frankly, just at greater velocity than most people, but who actually puts those thoughts into practice through training others. He puts his money where his mouth is. He's the incomparable, informationally voracious, 
teacher, writer, podcaster, David Perel. David, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for hosting me. Okay, so David, whether the listeners are already familiar with your work or whether they're not, and if you're not, guys, like, listen to the North Star Podcast, subscribe to all of David's newsletters, follow him on Twitter. It's one of the most value additive things you can do if you're a curious person. But basically, your story is so fascinating because I think most people look at a given age or moment in time and either identify something bad in it, which they lament, or something good in it, which they celebrate. So there are Yuval Noah Hararis and there are Steven Pinkers. But you're not really playing that game, right? At least at the outset, your approach is, at least it strikes me at first, is more analytical. You just look at the era we're in and you see a ton of information. And the first question that seems to interest you is just practically, how do we deal with that? So why does information as such interest you so much? And is it important to come to information with some priors or is maybe a view from nowhere more helpful in this particular age? Yeah, I think that information is an intellectual diet. So in the same reason that people get obsessed with nutrition for their bodies, I think it's worth thinking through information for your mind. And it's funny because we even talk about information like this. We say, oh, I need to digest that idea or that person has a thirst for knowledge, right? So we're actually already talking about information in ways that imply this. And so we know this intuitively. And by the way, on the flip side, there's verbal diarrhea, word vomit, you know, not to extend the metaphor in gross ways, but. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, right? And so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to basically flip it back and say, okay, there's a lot of metaphors going on here, a lot of similarities, and so let's go explore that. And I think that a lot of what you're saying, I thought the Pinker versus Harari thing was pretty interesting, how some people will look at the time, they'll say, oh, it's all good, it's all bad, and the fact of the matter is it's both. And a lot of what I'm trying to do with my work is take the internet, which a lot of people see, oh, it's so bad, all these sorts of things, that, yeah, there's truth in those statements, but to help people use the internet in ways that can be useful, can be productive, can be life-changing. And that is by sharing ideas online. And so the way that I see information, the one big prior that I do have is that we're reading too much stuff that locks us in the present moment. We're consuming too many things that were made in the last 24 hours, too much that was written in the past year. And by doing that, we're forgetting the wisdom of history. And that's part of the reason why I was excited to go on this podcast, why I am interested in faith as an idea is because faith is going back and retrieving ancient knowledge. And I think so much in the Jewish tradition in particular has a really solid canon of rabbis who are debating and debating where like when I work with my Hasidic rabbi, Chabad rabbi, what we always look at is both the literal text and what it says, and then how have the rabbis interpreted this? And we're bringing in ideas that are 500, 2,000 years old. And that is such a contrast to most of what I see on the internet, which was made in the last two days by someone who is writing that thing, making that thing in a rush. This is so exciting because this kind of harks back to when Tommy Collison came on the podcast. I had no idea Tommy was interested in Judaism. I just brought him on because I'm a huge fan. Same thing with you. I had no idea that you were talking to Chabad rabbis. That's rad. Um, yeah. Okay, so I want to really dive into so much of what you said, and there's so many ways to pick it apart and to pick up some really fascinating threads. It's such a rich text of an answer. Okay, I'll start here. My, my background is as an historian of the classical era, late antiquity. And one thing that you see as early as the second century BC, right, the Library of Alexandria, and at the same time you have teachers 
who are who are not using written text kind of wandering around the Holy Land. Right. And then in earnest over the next few centuries is this fierce contest between orality and the written word as sources of wisdom and authority. Now, in many ways, we're living in an age of like renewed Orality. I mean, Clubhouse seems like a failure, but Pew just informed us yesterday that YouTube is now by far the most used platform by American teens. Coming in second is TikTok. So those are kind of oral and visual media, but writtenness too seems to be having a moment, right? So there's the growth of Substack. There's the cultural, even policy influence of Twitter. So how do you see the landscape now? And as someone deeply invested in writing per se, what's the case for writtenness today? Well, that's interesting. So we can start with Twitter. Twitter is writing... But the patterns of Twitter are actually speaking. I love that. So it's what Walter Ong in his book, Orality and Literacy, called secondary orality. And so if you read a lot of viral tweets, they have the same shape as something that somebody would say as much as something that somebody would write or as, as much as something that somebody would write. And the kind of writing that we do creates different kinds of consciousness, different patterns of thought. So if you look at something like scientific writing or academic writing, which is very literate, sort of born out of 19th century traditions, 18th century traditions, it's really focused on logic. It's really focused on reason. And argumentation is sort of built up with different assumptions. And then you're working towards a logical conclusion. And it is written by somebody alone and it is read by somebody alone. And the oscillation of communication between writer and reader is very slow. That's what I think of as a literate mentality. Twitter's extremely different. Twitter is written in a way where you go straight to the punchline if you're telling a joke. It is written in a very colloquial way. It is written much more like the way we text. And when something goes viral on Twitter, say that it's a political tweet, it's not rooted in reason, like you're reading the Gettysburg Address or something. It is just focused on something, honestly, like comedy or irony, where it's bringing in a layer of emotion. And then if you look at Twitter, there's so much gossip and there's so much of people sort of piling on. And that mimics like a, like a town square. It mimics the way that people talk. It mimics the way people engage through modes of speech. And so Twitter is a really interesting anomaly because it is writing, but it actually plays more like speech. And it's what on called secondary orality, that that's where we were going to go. So I just had this discussion uh, with my friend, the philosopher, fellow podcaster, Zohar Atkins, also incredible follow on Twitter, friend of the pod. He did a great episode with us. I just had this conversation with him this morning. He raised the question, should Socrates have cared more about transmitting his teaching, or paradoxically, was he most effective as a teacher specifically because he didn't care about impact? So I wonder how you think about the moral dimensions of caring about impact. Like, would Socrates have been worse if he had cared about impact? And on the flip side, how do we think about the moral role of someone like Plato, who clearly did care about impa impact on Socrates' behalf? Well, I think it depends. I was talking to a friend about this last night, and he was like, you know, I'm just going to write, and I'm not going to care about making money for my writing or anything like that, because that's a pure way to write. And I think that there's a few things going on here. The first is, the reason he can do that is he has an uh, investing business that works for him. And so what I was saying to him is, I think that you're being too 
just broadly being too skeptical of people who do need to write for a living. I've been trying to read up on classical music, and I think it's interesting that Mozart and Beethoven did perform for a living. And basically what the author of this lecture series says is that so often people romanticize these classical music legends as these greats, and they just assume that they just did music for the sake of the art. But in actuality, that's that's often just not the case. And if it is the case, it is because these people are from these aristocratic families where they don't have to worry about money. And I think that generally we're too skeptical of making art for money. With that said, there are so many negative externalities that do come from trying to make art for money. And at the same time, there's a lot of people who do it in poor taste. And one of the concerns that I have about a world without religion is that it can lead to an amoral world and you don't have some of the social structures that keep people in check through some kind of prohibition or some kind of ritual. And so then you basically get this sort of capitalism taken to its extreme. And I think that a lot of the early people who did celebrate capitalism, they assumed that it would be bounded by by faith. And once it becomes unbounded, you end up having certain issues. And so I would actually be more worried about people pursuing art for money in a world outside of religion than in a world that can be sheltered and protected by faith or some kind of idea that exists outside of the world. So I want to pick up on something you said earlier, which is that religion is actually a source of fascination in a world of of information superabundance because it's sort of a set of stable truths. It has staying power. And I wonder if you could kind of think of religion in an age of informational superabundance along two dimensions. I'm kind of riffing a little bit now. There would be like informational monotheism and informational paganism, right? Where the core problem that a religious approach to information superabundance is trying to confront is that there's just a frightening amount of it, right? So you're staring into like this Cthulhu-like void, this oblivion of just endless amounts of information, and it's really terrifying. And sort of the informational paganism approach would be to say, well, much like when, you know, the ancient Babylonians or the or the Canaanites or the Romans looked at the storm, the might of the storm, and they were treated in terror to things that they knew, right? Let's sacrifice a bull. Let's go sit in front of a hearth, right? So you would go back and so, you know, in the face of brand new information, you would want to read things you're familiar with or in the face of tons of new music, you just want to listen to the Beatles all the time because it's safer, right? That's one way of thinking about an informational return, right? I guess I'd call it informational paganism. There's a good argument that that's exactly what's happening right now, right? The most popular TV show is Stranger Things. So much of what we're trying to do is actually go back. And Ted Goya writes really well about this. Oh, I love him. And he's saying, hold on here. There's outwardly a real move towards progressivism. Hey, let's go to the future. But if you look at culturally, what people are looking at, it's not just Stranger Things in TV, it's Top Gun in movies. It's the rise of sequels as what Hollywood is actually producing. And I'm sympathetic to that argument. I, I think there's a lot of interesting things that arise if you follow that. 
I'm not sure that I would take the framing that, hey, if there's so much new stuff, you just want to go back to what's old. But I do get the sense that there is something going on right now that is bringing us back to these old ideas. Or maybe it's just that there's, you know, a bunch of boomers and it somehow just like aligns with some kind of nostalgia that they feel. I totally agree with that. And that's what I'm trying to sketch out here is like informational paganism is like meaning paganism is also like a return to tradition, to something familiar, to something new. But it's in service of either having to avoid the storm or being able to manipulate the storm in some way. But there's another case for, you know, why it's good to make sure the Beatles are a part of your listening diet or why you should watch go back and watch Top Gun. And I guess I'd call it like informational monotheism where you actually you look at the storm and you look at the tempest and you don't see something terrifying, but you do see something much bigger than anything you've confronted and you want to grapple with it or maybe with its author and you want to create some sort of relationship with it. And you go back to things that are old because they give you an anchor in the storm. Yeah, well, well, I think that there's a very practical mirror to what you're saying, which is this debate over the canon. Right. Like, should there be a canon? Should there not be a canon? Exactly. So I think you're seeing this all over the place. And look, I, I'm speaking relatively now, but I'm very pro-canon. Like, I think that we're now way too anti-canon. And I think that a classical education where you're reading, like, the capital GB great books is something that way more people should be doing. You know, I was talking to a designer recently because I've been redoing the logo for my company, Rite of Passage. And... It was really frustrating as we were trying to find designers. You know, we're trying to find, okay, so they need to be original and creative and all these sorts of things. You know, we really need to bash convention and and do something unique because I'm just tired of minimalism. I'm tired of everything looking the same, this homogeneity that is showing up all over the place. And so we're finding designers in their 20s and their 30s. And I'll tell you, they, they all seemed so the same there wasn't that much differentiation between them. And we ended up going with a designer who started his first agency in 1980. So he's been designing wow. for 42 years, hand draws everything. And I said, said, Craig, like, what's going on with this? And he said, I'll tell you exactly what it is. The modern generation, they work within Photoshop, they work within Illustrator, and they're part of this copy and paste generation. So the advantage that they have is that they've seen literally 50 to 100 times more images, more designs, more logos than I had seen at, at that same age. So they've gotten more reps. But what they've lost is the continuity of history and then also this ability to sort of detach and get away from what everyone else is doing. And all the other design projects I've worked on the past two years, what do we do? We start with a mood board. And how do we get that mood board? We go and we look on Pinterest, we look on Dribble, all these design websites, look at websites that we like, and we bring them all into a single place. And we say, I want more of this and I want less of that. Okay, let's do this little category. And then we're gonna take something that's in between that. The problem is when you do that, you're still within the frame of modern culture. Whereas what, what Craig did, which I loved, is he took the ideas that we were saying and he went and he hand drew all of these designs. Everything's in these little notebooks. And now what you're doing is you're, you're like bowling without bumpers. You're creating without bumpers. And there's this kind of novelty that emerges from it. And then I looked at his office 
And he's pulling from designs from the past 150, 200 years with these like big books of styles, of patterns, of logos that you wouldn't see on the contemporary internet. And I think that there's a lot there in terms of how he's thinking about about design and why I like working with him so much is that he's escaped what I call the never ending now, which is this constant treadmill that we're always on on the internet where we're consuming the same stuff that was made in the last 24 hours. And then he's also leaving this huge time bias that we exist in of only consuming things that have been created recently and actually looking back and cross-pollinating patterns throughout time because designers aren't doing that right now, which is, you know, look up the corporate Memphis style. I don't know if, are, are you familiar with this? No. Okay, so like Google it. It's basically all of these stick figure drawings. And it basically, there's this ad agency in like 2016. Oh, it's like all the PowerPoint. It's like, this is the thing that all the PowerPoints now are based yeah. on. And basically there's this ad agency in Los Angeles in 2016. They wanted to make it for Facebook so that Facebook could like scale their, their, their product. And then they could have, it's actually pretty genius in the first instantiation of it. Because you can basically take these stick figure drawings and then you can make them with any skin color, look like anything. And then they're abstract enough that anyone can sort of impart their own meaning on it, but concrete enough that people can see other people in them. But now that design style is everywhere. You see it in Nike, Uber, Facebook, everywhere. And it's because we're so caught up in this fast oscillating cycle of conversation that we're just getting the sameness. And so that's just another good reason to go back to the canon because there always is a canon. There always is a canon. The question is like, are you in the canon of like what everyone's talking about now? Or are you in the canon of of time and what we've developed over centuries and centuries? And actually the human ability to filter what's best and what's worth keeping. And I think this is one of the great gifts of the Jewish tradition, the ability of rabbis to debate and decide, okay, what are we gonna keep in the canon? What aren't we gonna keep? The more I study it, the more I'm impressed by how good of a job they've done. Okay, so this is exactly, by the way, the argument that you've helped me much better articulate, which is that just historically speaking, canon is an invention of biblical monotheism. And if you think about it for a moment, it's because canon doesn't make th doesn't make sense under pantheism, right? There is no one accepted route to truth. There's a way to Zeus, there's a way to Baal, there's a way to Marduk. Canon only makes sense if there is a right way to do things or maybe even just one right way to do things or one right way for me to do things. But the interesting thing about canon, which you pointed out earlier, is that when you try to revert from a society rooted in just some sense, even if not in a belief sense, but in a civic sense in biblical monotheism, and you try to revert to a society under pantheism, it's not that people will forget that canons are good. They'll just revert to the lowest common denominator of canons, right? So everyone will watch the same things on Netflix and listen to the same things on Spotify, and it'll all be stuff from like back in the day, but it won't necessarily be good because we'll have surrendered the one criterion we had, which was the one criterion we had for sifting good from bad. So people will just default to dumb choices rather than actually put in thought to thinking about good choices. And that's the danger of the moment that we're at, but also the opportunity, right? Like canon is such an opportunity of this age. Actually, that brings me to another question. Question. Let's say you're atheist, you're agnostic, but you're invested in the American future and maybe the wider Western world as well. So why should you read the Bible? Oh my goodness. Well, 
Real quick, last point on canons. I don't think that you should, like I am, I do love esoteric knowledge. I do like finding things. The golden age of sampling in hip hop is like rad. We're like, they're trying to find like the stuff that no one's ever listened to and put it on the beat, you know? It's awesome, right? Like every now and then you find some hidden gem and you find some character, you know, it's like Howard Zinn, right? It's like Howard Zinn wrote a great and very needed book, which was, I'm going to tell the story of America from the perspective of the people who have been oppressed rather than the oppressors. That book needed to be written. And you don't even have to agree with it to appreciate that, like, super weird books should be written more often. Yeah, super outlandish. Like, whoa, I've never thought about that. Like, that book, I'm so happy I've read. My issue with it is now if you talk to people who are in school, they see that as the canonical history text, and it's become its own kind of canon. And he, in the introduction, says this book is deliberately biased. This book is going out on a limb, and now we've taken that and made its own canon. So we've actually perverted by trying to, like, disrupt the notion of a canon, which I'm all for in this particular way. We've then sort of created this weird new canon. Now, to your story about the Bible— it's the easiest answer ever. We need to read the Bible because it's the most important book ever written, most influential book on your life if you're a Westerner, hands down. I mean, geez, if you want to read literature, anything written before the 20th century just assumes an understanding of the Bible. If you, okay, so say you want to study government. Well, we say in the founding documents of America, we are saying like that life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are endowed by a creator. They're like the very logic of the American project rests on biblical ideas. Go to the Louvre in, in Paris. I mean, the great works of art, you can't understand them without knowing the Bible. And it's so bizarre to me because I was a victim of this. Like, basically, I grew up Jewish, went to Hebrew school every day, actually knew Hebrew uh, well enough that when I went to Israel a couple times in middle school, I was able to speak with locals. I didn't even know any of this. This is rad. Uh, the 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 alphabet song has been stuck in my head all week. We used to go, <laughs> Aleph, Bet, Vet, Gimel, Dalit, Hey. <laughs> it was like my favorite song ever. This is so dope. <laughs> What's crazy is I got to a place where I was like, why would I study that? Those are these myths, these things that aren't real. And I'm going to go be, you know, some militant atheist, and I'm just going to totally reject those teachings. And now I'm like, that's crazy for two reasons. The first is I didn't really think through my militant atheism and actually realize the implications of that. But that's okay. Like, I was 19 years old, 20 years old. Like, that's a project for later. <laughs> what I do think is an issue is that even if I was a militant atheist— the best way to be a militant atheist is to actually understand what the Bible says. And that is because you'll understand your own culture better. And if you want to go win debates and arguments, well, you should understand what the other side says as well as they know what they're saying too. And then you want to debunk their arguments from there. And I just find it to be so bizarre that for the last 2,000 years, we've had this text that was— the thing that basically everybody agreed was the most important text. And somehow in the last 50 years, we just banished that thing. And now I went through college and a good high school and I never once opened the Bible. What? There's something so perverted about that way of thinking.
Perverse, not perverted, yeah. (laughs) That's an underrated biblical text or story that moderns would benefit from exploring. That would give them some wisdom or insight. Ah, the Cain and Abel story. The Cain and Abel story is the greatest story in the Bible. Like, it is the best story in the Bible because you basically have the core source of conflict in humans and what happens when conflict begins. So I've been working on this project for a while about Rene Girard and his mimetic theory. And Girard basically, the one-liner is that conflict happens when two people are the same, not when they're different. And you're like, what does that mean? And basically, he says that the structure of conflict is you have two people who begin to want the same thing because they're influenced by each other for the same desire, like a toy. So two little three-year-olds will want the same toy. And all of a sudden, there'll be a hundred toys in the room, but they will actually converge on the same toy because they want the same thing. And then what will happen is they'll become more and more similar. They will fight. And that fight, even if they're just fighting over a toy, can actually spiral out of control and into utter chaos. And I think that that's so much of what the Cain and Abel story is about. It's about the worst of the seven deadliest sins, which is envy. And then you have a killing. And you're like, okay, well, that's just a story. It's just a rock that's thrown. That's sort of like what happens in World War I, where there's all of these issues and conflicts that are brewing. Ferdinand gets assassinated, and now you have a world war. And so it's when a little conflict can spiral out of control. And so what you need to do if you're living a life and you want to be free of conflict is you actually want differentiation. There's a reason that so often in ancient literature, twins are a curse. They're too similar. And, you know, with Ken and Abel, they're brothers. And I mean, I fought with my sister like crazy growing up. Like that's when so much of conflict emerges. And what you want is you want differentiation. You want like a good fences, make good neighbors type thing. And you want people who are working on different things. Peter Thiel, who studied under Rene Girard at Stanford, at PayPal said, everyone can work on one thing and one thing only, and they will be the only person responsible for that thing. And that way you give people these little territories and you don't have people competing in all these ways. And it just always comes back to the Cain and Abel story. It's the story that keeps on giving. Speaking of Genesis, should humanity want to go back to the Garden of Eden, like in anthropological terms, like if it's just a story, is it possible for our expulsion from the Garden to be a sad thing, but also good for us? I have no idea. I have no idea. I feel like I need 20 years to answer that question. I don't know. I guess what I'm getting at is, right, the the story of the very, very beginning of Genesis is that there is something dangerous about the human quest for knowledge. And yet, at the same time, I think it was Peter Thiel who also pointed this. I think it was like an essay in First Things he pointed out. The Bible uh, begins in a garden, but it ends in a city. And depending on if you stop reading at the end of the Hebrew Bible, if you go on to the Christian Bible, it's a different city, but it's still, I mean, it's a city in different state, but it's still Jerusalem. So on the one hand, there's this idea that the quest for knowledge is dangerous. At the same time, the Bible clearly is, I mean, the Bible just narrates a story of the importance of human development. I mean, the the biblical story begins with an act of creation and tells us we're created in the image of that being, right? So creation and building new things is a good thing. So how do we navigate that tension between the danger in the quest for knowledge and the fact that knowledge helps us do the thing the Bible wants us to do? 
Yeah, I've thought a lot about this question and I'm pretty mixed on it because I had a thesis going for a while that actually knowledge is much more dangerous than people think and that, you know, the forbidden fruit is the tree of knowledge and maybe we shouldn't be eating from that. And at the same time, it just, I mean, especially the Jewish tradition is such, I mean, it's all about knowledge, all about furthering that knowledge. So, I mean, I guess we can explore it together here. I don't know, something about that doesn't seem right. So it's maybe a certain kind of knowledge, or maybe it's knowledge that is prohibited. And like, we live in this world of of liberalism, where we basically want to get rid of prohibitions, like at least nominally, like allow people to do anything that they want, you know, give people total freedom. But one thing that you see all the time in Judaism is certain prohibitions, especially in more orthodox and conservative modes of Judaism, right? Like you walk into the synagogue and the men are on one side, the women are on the other. Just picking up on that thread, I wonder if maybe it's knowledge, it's not knowledge per se, it's like it's knowledge from a particular standpoint or, or inhabiting a particular role. So for example, when we use the phrase like godlike knowledge or, or omniscience, right, just knowing it. Let me separate those two things. When we talk about godlike knowledge, I think we usually mean omniscience, right? Just knowing everything. But godlike knowledge could also mean knowing things and being able to act on it from the position of of God. So perhaps the, the danger in knowledge is not having knowledge, wielding knowledge, pursuing knowledge and implementing it and executing against it. It's what's the role that you see yourself occupying when you deploy those things, right? Are you... Are you serving other people? Are you helping other people? Or are you dominating them? Are you directing them? Right? Maybe I wonder if that's I wonder if that's the danger of Eden. It's like trying to become like God, not in knowing everything, but in how you would use all that knowledge if you had it. Yeah. One of the the other cuts on this that I would want to think through is all of us know that there's temptations that we could give into. And I think that the forbidden fruit is a reminder of that, that maybe it's not knowledge, but it's action. And maybe like, I'd have to look into the, the etymology of knowledge, like what that actually means. This is the perfect example of why I always read the Bible with like a translator, because you got to know what the original Hebrew says, or if you're reading the, the Bible, like reading the, the ancient Greek or the New Testament, the ancient Greek is super helpful to always go back to. Because what I find whenever I do these biblical studies is I work myself back into what the word actually means, which is always like a, it's like a sibling or like a cousin of what I think it means. But once I actually dial down, it's like, okay, hold on. There's actually different DNA here, which then gets into the implications. That said, the tree of knowledge, basically everybody calls that. So maybe we should trust that that translation pretty well. But I just think it's a reminder that there are good reasons to stop ourselves before before we do things. But I mean, I love investigating esoteric knowledge. And I do believe fundamentally that in my reading of the Bible, God wants us to learn. God wants us to expand our knowledge. Because here's the other way to think of it. If like what you're saying is right, that the Bible starts in a garden and ends in a city, well, you need knowledge to build that city. Exactly. And so, yeah, this is a sort of an interesting paradox to work through. So I've, I've said often on this podcast that I think tech founders and religion are natural allies. And the case I've made has basically been that 
these are the two major American communities that are best able and even designed to focus on executing projects with long time horizons. Founders are thinking about building the future by failing today. And religion is really great at executing across generations better than any other social institution. So at the very least, the way you could think about it is somewhat, somewhat like this. Tech is building the software for the future, right? Like the things we'll need for the future. And religion is building the hardware, right? I.e. people. Like they're the only ones having kids who will use the things that tech is building. But I want to explore another convergence with you and maybe talk not directly about religion and founders, but religion and VCs. Right, because well, while I, I think that many people are able to correctly diagnose that VCs like Peter or investors like Peter Thiel can perform a valuable social function, at least when they're doing a good job by identifying talent, like socially useful talent, I think people usually fail in identifying the skill set that we as a society want from VCs, right? So I think most people think VCs are supposed to sort the good, sane businessmen from all of the crazies. But in reality, I think what we actually want from VCs is to sort the good crazies from the bad crazies, right? In other words, you want to have some crazy, you need to have the crazies and you want to be able to sort true profits from false profits, right? So is that another area where a thought world like the Bible is likely to be helpful in solving contemporary problems, right? Like sorting true profits and false profits? Yeah, I mean, profits is an interesting word. Yeah, and it's important, you know, what I would say, the core message of, like, one of the the core messages of the Bible is that there can only be one God, you know, uh, like even the Shema always, you know, goes back to that in Judaism. But I like that way of thinking about, about VCs. The thing is, I think it depends on the stage. So, like, a seed stage VC, I think that generally they are going for wider variance. Basically, with each stage of investing, the variance should go down because the amount of money goes up. It tends to be more institutional capital. And VCs don't just invest once. They're investing at multiple stages, C stage, Series A, B, C, D, E. And so I think that it actually depends on the early stage. But yeah, the early stage people, I think that what they're doing is not even necessarily... Like, they have to be okay with the risk that they give somebody half a million dollars, which isn't that much money in the grand scheme of things, who ends up being a false prophet. The real problems happen when you get series C, series Ds, and then you end up with these false prophets. And there's all kinds of those stories. Right. So maybe the the way to triage around trying to identify true prophets is just kind of spread your risk across a bunch of prophets and hope that one of them is true. So I, I want to transition at the, at the end of the pod here to you personally, because you, one of the things that anyone will notice about you when they engage with you and follow you and learn from you is that you are just extraordinarily productive. So what does it look like in terms of your kind of daily balance or maybe weekly balance between reading, writing, consuming, and producing? Like, how do you negotiate the those two things? Yeah. So, I mean, I can just walk you through today. I mean, the first thing is I work really hard. So... That is a big one. And I think that hard work is extremely important, especially early in your career, because that's how you get a lot of reps to figure out what systems for productivity work for you, what you actually want to do with your life. And then the more aligned that you can be with those two things, the better. So a lot of the reason that people aren't productive is just because they're doing things that they don't care about with people they don't like. And when that's the case, every single thing that you do, you have to have a willpower inside of you that creates productivity. 
when you're actually productive, you are so aligned as a human being that that productivity, that drive is actually frictionless. It's in a state of flow and you just go. And so my productive days are when I'm working in alignment and my unproductive days are when I'm out of alignment. And so the first thing that you want to think through is how aligned is my schedule with what I want to be doing with my life, both at the macro level of is the telos of my work, is that leading to an end that I care about, a vision for my future and the world's future that I think is better than now? And then also within your days, are you doing the things that you're uniquely good at and that you uniquely enjoy doing that uniquely help the company, the project that you're working on? So that's where I begin. And so on a day like today, I woke up and I just sit down and I I sat down and I really just focused on writing. I was working on a Twitter thread with some different ideas that I had about the writing process. Then we're hiring somebody new full-time. So I had a quick FaceTime call to close a candidate. I think I'm uniquely good at that. I love doing it. A podcast like this, I think are a blast. And I also wrote a script for a video that I'm working on about why people should join Reddit Passage. Then I have an office hours at 2 p.m. Then I have some time in my day to go to the gym. Then I have a production meeting because we're trying to really ramp up production. And then tonight, I'm gonna finish writing my script. So as you can hear, every single thing in there is aligned with what I wanna be doing and is actually what I'm uniquely good at. And I think that that's important. For me, the things are, how can I be exploring ideas like we are right now, both in a convergence phase of listening and reading, where I'm, or divergence phase of reading and listening, I'm just sort of out looking at my periphery, trying to find new ideas, new ways of thinking, like the conversation we just had about knowledge. What is God's take on knowledge? Okay, that's a new idea that's been planted in my head. Synthesizing information is the second thing. And then sort of communicating that information is a big thing. So anything that requires setting a vision for my company, trying to get a candidate to come work for us, trying to work with an employee who or someone I work with to inspire them, to galvanize them, to give them a vision for where they're going. Those are the things I try to do. And then I have just an amazing team around me. I think I have 12 full-time employees, something like that. And so that team really helps me make sure that the stuff that I'm not as good at, accounting, operations, finance, um, Excel spreadsheets, all those sorts of things, I have really good people around me. And It's my job to really lead that team. And so part of my productivity is working hard. Part of my productivity is having a bunch of systems. But frankly, part of my productivity is an illusion to someone who's an outsider because I have a team around me that is extremely helpful. And I think the reason why they're they're helpful is I've worked extremely hard for the past who knows how many years to really distill what is it that I do and don't want to do and just get closer and closer and closer on that orbit. And it's like when you... You know, when I was a kid, there was I, I used to just spin this ball around the circle at this place in San Francisco called the Exploratorium. It's a science museum. And as the orbit gets tighter and tighter, the ball seems to go faster and faster. It's actually when it's on the outside that it goes slow. And it's just like that. I want to be in the middle of that swirl, right? In a tornado, the middle of that swirl is the destructive force. And so I'm trying to always bring that alignment. Here's one you'll like. Okay, take five fingers. Go like this, right? You got a high five. My basketball coach, Elliot Smith, growing up, used to tell me this. Okay, now I could hit you with my fit or with my hand, and it would hurt. Okay, but this is five fingers. 
that are separate from each other. Now, if I brought them together and I punched you in the face, now that would really hurt. That would knock you out. And the reason is because once we get that tightness, that cohesiveness, we can actually go faster. And I think productivity is the same way. I think when most people adopt a reading strategy, they want to maximize for trustworthiness, which is why you end up reading the same thing that you're just comfortable with over and over and over again. It's something you trust. Mm -hmm. My impression of of you and why I find you such a valuable, uh, one of the reasons I find you such a valuable person to follow is my impression is that your reading strategy maximizes for finding interesting things. So am I right about that? And if so, how do you do that without just kind of falling off a cliff into the oblivion of, of information that's out there? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm at no risk of falling into the cliff of information that's out there because <laughs> I have really good curators and I have friends who they do a good job of sending me the stuff that they think is high signal and they know that I'll read it and then I'll respond back to them. But also I'm really intentional about the curators that I that I trust. I never spend time finding things myself. I go follow the guide and I let other people do that. And then what I'm always trying to do is just get outside of this never ending now, what everybody's reading, right? So what I'll do then is I will save information or articles, books, and I will put them into Instapaper if it's an article or Kindle if it's a book. And so now, like if I open my Instapaper, I never read from the browser. So I have escaped this reactivity loop, which a lot of people get in, which is you're scrolling Twitter and it's like, must read article. And then you're like, oh my goodness, I need to read this article. So now you're sitting at your desk, you're reading the article, you're procrastinating, you're reading something that was probably just published and you're letting somebody else actually take control over your reading too much. What I just do is I find articles that I think are interesting, I save them to a central place, and then when it's time to read, I just scroll, like which one's gonna be the highest value? Okay, so it's like Thomas Thomas Sowell, Thoughts on Writing. Cool, two-step flow of communication, 10,000 hours with Reed Hoffman. What does the chief of staff do? Emile Zola and his friend Paul Cezanne. Do things, tell people, like all over the place, but none of those articles were published in the past couple years. There's all over the place. And 95% of those articles that I've saved in paper, I'm not going to read. And so what I'm doing is I'm making those articles fight for my attention. And I would actually say that most people actually see a bunch of articles that would be great to read. The problem is when it's time to read, they either have like 400 tabs open on their browser and it's a mess or they're just reading the thing that they saw most recently. And so what I'm always trying to do is find people who are out on the the outskirts, the edge, because the, in, the most interesting things always happen on the edge, right? If you go to a conference, the best idea that you're gonna hear will not be at the main keynote that everybody goes to on stage minute six. Right, that's the best time to go to sleep, 100%. <laughs> the, that's the best time to go to sleep. The best idea you're gonna hear is at the bar at 11.45 p.m. when it's a little loud, you're sort of leaning in close and people are beginning to leave. And that's because 
in these private groups out on the edges, that's where you're finding good ideas. So I'm trying to find people who are out on the edges, see what they're hyperlinking to, save it to a central location like Instapaper. And then when it's time to read, just pop in there and see what I can find. That's amazing. Okay. So I, the very last question, I want to do some plugs. So what's, what's like one great episode of your podcast, you know, or one great essay, a uh, short essay that you've written on your, on your homepage that people should be aware of? Yeah. So I'd say three things. So for podcast episode, listen to the episode I recorded with Tyler Cowan. He's a really productive writer. Uh, and so I basically interviewed him just, just basically begging him for an hour to say, tell me how you're so productive. Tell me how you're so productive. And he had some good answers there. For an essay, I would say just start with something short. Read The Paradox of Abundance. Just look that up, Paradox of Abundance in my name. Or for something longer, an essay called Peter Thiel's Religion. And then the thing I recommend most to your point about interesting links is just Google my name and then Friday finds links, Friday finds links. And I literally have, I don't know, I must have 300 links in there. And each one has a paragraph that I've written about the link. And you'll find so many weird ideas from all over the place. So yeah, do that. And then if you want more of those links, just sign up for Friday finds at the top of the page. Amen. David, thank you so much for being here. This is amazing. Thank you. How do we navigate in an age where our access to information is limitless? How do we read better? How do we write well? How do we seek out valuable new things? And why is it also more important than ever to hold on to or maybe discover for the first time the virtues of ancient wisdom? David's such a fantastic role model for how to engage with these questions, not from a place of fear, but a place of enthusiasm and insatiable curiosity. And I kind of like the framing we evolved on the episode. Informational monotheism is the way to go. We're facing a scary amount of knowledge, but that fear shouldn't cause us to hide or revert to what we know simply by rote. It should impel us to sort the good from the bad, even when that's a heavy lift, secure in the knowledge that this is what God wants from us as bearers of the divine image and those who are compelled and given the responsibility to imitate him in his act of creating the infinite. Anyway, this is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Galad Brownstein. This is a Soul Shot podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at soulshopstudios.com slash goodfaitheffort. For more information about Soul Shop, follow Soul Shop on Twitter at Soul Shop Studios and on Instagram at soulshop underscore studios. And check out soulshopstudios.com. Soul